All right. Well, as uh, I said earlier, I'm really grateful to be with you here this morning. Uh, it is a joy to be back, if you will. Uh, thank you. I just wanted to say thank you for the many who shot little notes and said, hey, we're praying for you, that you and your family would be refreshed as we were away. We truly were, even though it's weird. It's a pandemic. Everything's kind of up in the air until the last moment. I know many of you, uh, your vacation plans were halted, and, and I've been praying for you that you would have refreshment as well in Jesus. But thanks for all of your prayers and your kind notes. Well, this morning as we jump into our text, we're continuing to walk through the book of 2 Corinthians, and we're going to be looking at chapter 7, verses 5 to 16. And I, I would just encourage you, if you have a Bible, open in them there. Uh, also open your device. And I would just say, uh, you know, sometimes PowerPoint or words on uh, the screen can make us lazy. Uh, but if you're able to have a Bible open in front of you, uh, that is just going to be so much for your benefit. So you can uh, study God's Word, go back to it, revisit it. Uh, you can also check me, right? Uh, so you know that what I'm saying is coming out of God's Word. And so I just want to say that occasionally uh, to encourage you to be in God's Word. But as we go through 2 Corinthians 7, 5 to 16, uh, I, I need to set the context as to where we are. Uh, we've been in this book for a little while, and so we may have lost track of what's come before it. And so uh, there's a reason why I'm reading this first, so just uh, follow along with me here. 2 Corinthians 2, 12 to 13 says this, and here's the context. Paul says, well, hold on, let me stop. Remember what we're talking about with this church in Corinth. Paul planted it, right? And then they became a big dumpster fire. A lot of bad stuff started happening in this church. So he writes 1 Corinthians, which is a letter addressing some of the problems that are going on. That didn't seem to take. There were more letters. There were more visits by Paul. It's kind of a tumultuous relationship. And so what we're getting ready to read is Paul uh, ha basically had written another letter, and he sent Titus to go check on the results of the letter, and he was waiting for Titus to come back with a report. And so that's what we're going to be talking about as we read here in chapter 2, 12 to 13. Here's what it said. Paul says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So a couple things I want you to pay attention to as we read this. First of all, um, he's basically saying, I went to Troas to do ministry because that's what he's doing. He's planting churches. And he's saying, I didn't see Titus there. I was expecting to see him. And he's saying, even though a door was open in the Lord, he was saying, even though I had all these ministry opportunities, guess what? My spirit was still troubled, so I left. Stop and think about how hard that probably was for Paul to do. But that's how deeply knit his heart was to this church that he planted. And he goes on to say, you know, I, I, I wasn't at rest, so I left and I went to Macedonia. All right, so that's the context. And you might be like, well, haven't we read through chapter 7, really? That's where John ended last week. Uh, how could this be our context? Well, um, up to chapter 2, 12 to 13, this is kind of a travel log of sorts. And then Paul pauses, and from there until what we just finished last week, he defends his own ministry. So it's like us as we drove through Virginia last week. It's like, yeah, I went to Virginia. We drove through Harrisonburg, and we were on our way to Charlottesville. And then I stop and say, and here's why you should visit Virginia. And then for the next five chapters, I go on and talk about, here's how I can defend Virginia. Virginia doesn't need defending. It's a wonderful state, right? But, but I digress. So that's kind of what happens. And so now, as we read our passage today, Paul is essentially clicking back in uh, to where he left off with his travelogue here. So I'm going to read 5, 6, and 13. Follow along with me. Paul writes this. 
He says, For even when we came to Macedonia, so there we are back in Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without, fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Now skip down to 13. Verse 13, he, he ends and he says, Therefore we are comforted. All right, so, so what's happening here? He goes to Macedonia. There's fighting without. There's fear in his own heart. He's saying God comforts him. There's rejoicing happening. Why? Well, that's what we're going to find out. Something happens between verse 6 and verse 13 that comforts Paul. In fact, uh, we get a, a little bit of a, a glimpse of that as we look at 7.16 where he says, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Okay, stop for just a second. He has confidence in Corinth. He is comforted in his fear. He is comforted in the fighting that's going on around him because he has confidence in Corinth. Does that make sense? What did I just say about Corinth? It was a dumpster fire, right? John last week talked about how Paul addresses Corinth's relationship with the culture and that it wasn't good and that their own affections were getting in the way. If you go back and you read 1 Corinthians, this church was confused in their sexuality. They were suing each other. They were making a mess of all their marriages. They were unwilling to lay down their rights for one another. They were giving themselves over to idolatry, which, by the way, some of those things uh, may be prevalent in the church in America today. There's really nothing new under the sun. Why on earth would this church ever bring comfort to Paul? Would that church bring you comfort if you were a minister who had planted it? What would the church that would bring you comfort look like? They memorized the catechisms. They did everything well. They were involved in every great program, right? That's the church that we think should comfort Paul. Why on earth was this dude comforted by Corinth? Well, that's what the verses between 7 and 13 tell us. And so, again, if you have your Bibles, open up. Uh, I'm going to start reading 7 to 9. Paul writes this, And not only by his coming, Titus' is coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. All right, so what's going on here? Well, brief outline. This first section, we're going to look at this idea of loving grief. And the second point, we're going to look at two types of grief. So loving grief, that's what happened here in 7 to 9. So Paul was confident, and there's a couple of things that happened that helped him gain this confidence. First, he starts off, uh, talking about this letter that he wrote. He said, I grieved you with my letter, and I don't regret it. And then he said, though I did regret it. All right, so, so do you know these types of letters that he's talking about? Have you ever written a letter or an email or a text where you just agonized over every word, every comma, every period that you put in there because you know that it will impact that relationship forever? Have you ever had one of those? That was the type of letter that Paul was writing. He knew this was actually going to grieve the church as they received it because it had hard words. Now, I'm not talking about the type of email that we write where we go home fuming over something. We're like, 
send. And they were like, <gasps> resend, pull it back. You know, Google has that little function where you can pull the email back, right? I love that function. I've used it quite a few times. That's not the letter we're talking about, right? You know, Paul, but, but, but what Paul does say is, hey, after I handed it to the messenger, I was actually a little nervous. I was actually grieved to the point where I regretted it. And this is such a beautiful human moment for Paul. I'm writing a hard letter. I sent it. Oh, should I have sent that? But then in verse 9, he says, yes, I should have sent it. He says, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. You see, sometimes when we write those angry emails or letters, we're just trying to grieve somebody. We're just trying to poke them in the eye, get a pound of flesh. Those aren't the types of letters that Paul is rejoicing in. In fact, if it would have stopped there, my guess is, is Paul would have actually called that sort of letter sin. Not loving a neighbor, not speaking the truth in love. But he said, no, I rejoice because that grief gave way to repentance. Repentance is this idea of turning away from something that really is destroying a person, any love apart from God, any rebellion against God in thought or word or deed. That's what sin is. Of moving towards any worldview that does not have Christ as the Savior in the center. That is something that will destroy us. One person has said, kill sin or it will be killing you. And so Paul is saying this grief was worth it because it took you away from the edge of destruction. So Paul gives us a category of causing grief in another person's life to love and to protect them from sin. And here's what I want to say about this term sin. Is that all sin is ultimately against God. If we find ourselves calling people away from something uh, that isn't God, that is an ideology or a group, or something like that, we're actually not calling people to repentance. We're calling them to something, but it is not repentance from rebellion against God. Now, this is a category that is true of God in Hebrews 12. Uh, as we read it, we'll see that God disciplines those he loves, right? And, and, and if a follower of Christ is not experiencing discipline, he actually says we're illegitimate children. We're actually not his. So God does discipline us. But here's what Hebrews 12 says about that discipline. It says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, discipline, repentance, this category of, of grief uh, out of love is something that God himself uses, and it is something that he uses in the lives of his kids, of anyone who is called on Jesus Christ in faith to love us, to train us. Now, if you're a parent, or you have younger siblings, or you've ever babysat, this idea of discipline makes some sense, doesn't it? I mean, if we do see a child who is in our care running towards a busy street, or running towards an electrical socket with a butter knife in their hands, which they shouldn't have the knife in their hands anyway, but if we see that happening, wouldn't it be horribly unloving to just let them go be like, hmm, this isn't going to turn out well, but you be you, you know, go run into the traffic. No, of course we don't do that. And that's what discipline is. Now, what usually happens when we pick up that child? They scream, they kick, they say hard things to us, right? The older they get, they say things like, you don't love me and, and what have you. <laughs> but friends, causing grief momentarily in someone's life to point them back to the heart of Jesus Christ and away from destruction 
is a form of loving them. Now, here's a reality, is that uh, sometimes in what part of what we do as followers of Christ is our whole lives is an undoing of how we think God thinks of us and how he responds to us. You know, for that child, if we put ourselves in that child's position, you know, when we're pulled away from things that might bring us destruction, um, do we like it? No. We scream. We kick. We say, I don't love you. I was hanging out with my mom here last week, and we were talking about some of those things, and there was one relationship when I was a teenager with this woman where they said, this relationship has to end. And I said really hard words to them. You don't love me. How dare you? And I look back now 20-some years later, and I just said to mom recently, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. That was so loving and so wise, right? But the reality is, is we do kick and scream in the midst of that. But, but we need to recognize that, you know, when God is disciplining us, he's not hating us. He's not being unloving towards us. In fact, he is hating the thing that will destroy us. It's kind of like being a parent of someone who is given to an addiction. When we are trying as hard as we can to remove those things from their lives that is destroying them, we are not hating our children. We are hating the thing that is destroying them. And that is what God looks at with the sin and the idolatrous loves in our lives and why discipline is a part of our lives. So there's two categories of people as we think about um, living in this world of loving grief, right? First of all, there's the, uh, the, the conflict avoiders among us, right, who says, oh, that's really bad that they're doing that. That's, that's going to be really harmful. I'm going to go over here and ignore it, right? And, and that's what I would call the appeasers. I get that word. I'm reading a book uh, called... The Splendid in the Vile. It's a book about Winston Churchill's first year as prime minister during World War II. Awesome book. Get it and read it. But one of the quotes he said is, an appeaser is one who feeds a crocodile hoping that it will eat him last. (laughs) An appeaser is one who feeds a crocodile hoping that it will eat him last. Friends, oftentimes when we turn a blind eye to a brother or sister in Christ who is wandering away from the love of their lives, Jesus Christ, we become an appeaser. We're feeding the crocodile that will destroy them. And oh, by the way, people never sin and rebel against God in a vacuum. It has unbelievable relational impact in the lives of those around them, including in the church. And so are we willing to grieve a brother and sister and call them to faith and repentance? Are we willing to do that? You know, that means as we see people going adrift on social media, the body of Christ clicks into action. And says, brother, sister, you're, you're pursuing a love that isn't Christ, and it will destroy you. It doesn't mean you call an elder or you call a pastor. It means you engage as the antibodies of the body of Christ, and you lovingly call people to faith in Jesus. You know, there's been examples of that recently in our church, and I've been just so encouraged by those who have said, yeah, I, I want to walk out and call people to faith in Christ and away from that which will harm them. Now, here's the other category. Some of us have no problem uh, going after other people, right? We will go after them. We will speak the truth. This phrase came to mind. David Foster Wallace says, Truth will set you free, but not until it is finished with you. (laughs) Truth will set you free, but not until it is finished with you. Here's what I want to say to those who would dogmatically pursue truth. One, Ephesians 4 says, speak the truth in love. We can't forget that category, in love. And first, we need to let the truth of the gospel impact us, remove 
the log from our own eye. Say, I am a woeful sinner going to another sinner to confront them in humility. That I have been offered the same grace that I must offer them. And I would also say this, is that as we go, our manner matters, right? Uh, Not just the matter of the matter. It's how we go to them. It's how we love them. And we are not calling them to faith in anything other than Jesus Christ. We are not turning them to turn to anything other than the person of Jesus Christ. I say that because right now in our pandemic world, my opinion is in an effort to regain control, we are setting up camps of ideologies, be it political or social or whatever it may be, where maybe we're calling people to turn to something, but it's not Jesus. We can never call people to turn to a party or a social movement, but to Christ, because Christ is far more robust than any of those categories. All of those things will make us think that an ideology or a type of person is the enemy instead of sin. And it'll make us think that something else is our Savior except for Jesus Christ. But as we go, we recognize that all of our hearts are prone to wander. All right, two types of grief. Two types of grief, verses 10 and 11. Sorry. Here we go. Verse 10 says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. All right, so there's two types of grief. In verse 10, we'll see this idea of worldly grief. Now, this passage doesn't talk a whole lot about what this worldly grief actually looks like, but as you interpret that word, and and many have dug down into it, to talk about this sort of worldly grief being that that is remorseful or full of self-pity. It's remorseful or full of self-pity. Here's a quote from a church father, Chris Ostom. He says, worldly sorrow is regret for the loss of money or reputation and friends. That kind of sorrow merely leads to a greater harm because the regret is often a prelude to a thirst for revenge, and I would add, or despair in our current culture. Only sorrow for sin is really profitable. Let me read it again. Worldly sorrow is regret for the loss of money, reputation, and friends. That kind of sorrow merely leads to greater harm because the regret is often a prelude to a thirst for revenge or despair. Only sorrow for sin is really profitable. Do you see what's at the heart of worldly regret? Itself. It's not God. It's not others. Itself. It's, oops, I got caught. It's, oops, um, I'm going to lose something through this. It's the Washington football team, right? Uh, yeah, we'll change our team's name only after everybody removes the, the money from it, right? Sorry, I had to make a Washington football team comment. I've just spent the time in Virginia, and I've been talking about it ad nauseum. But, but worldly regret is solely about self and not God and others. It, it avoids the hard work of repentance. Here's the second kind of grief, though, that we see here is godly grief. Look at the list on chapter 11. It says this, godly grief produced in this church earnestness. That means this new sense of of, uh, vigor in the relationship between them and God and them and Paul. They produce grief, which is an emotion. 
They produced eagerness to clear themselves. So that's an act of the will. They actually had an act of the will to say, hey, I'm going to live towards God. There was actually fear, not fear of God and not unhealthy fear, but a healthy fear of sin and what it might do to them, of God and the judgment uh, that, that Jesus will one day bring. It creates longing. This is relational. Longing to restore this broken relationship with Paul. Longing to restore this rela- broken relationship with God. Zeal and punishment. That word punishment, I think it's one of two times or one time that it's used in the New Testament, but this is a perspective of church discipline. So it actually moved them to, there was one person in particular who was a false teacher, and they were teaching against Paul. And they said, hey, out of love for this brother so that they don't believe that they're a believer, we can't see the fruit of repentance in their lives. Uh, They uh, exercised church discipline. It was also a protection on the church. And so, friends, here's what I would want you to see from this, is that repentance is not just intellectual, I'm sorry, right? But it's also emotional, and it's volitional. An act of the will is what volitional means. It's not just mechanical, but it's also relational. Friends, when we sin against God, it's primarily in relational terms. If your friend yells harmful words to you, was there a mechanical action of speaking words? Yes. But where was the real damage done? It's relational, right? It's a rejection of that relationship. It's a harm of you. It's, it's now uh, seeding distrust in the midst of it. A good example in Scripture of this is, is Peter and Judas, Matthew 26 and 27. Feel free to look it up later. But Peter sins against Jesus, denies him three times, runs away, shame disappears. But then in John 21, you see him restored by Christ and actually moving towards Christ. But then you see Judas in chapter 27 of Matthew, when he is faced with his sin, he goes to the Jewish leaders, he dumps out the 30 shekels of silver, and then he runs and he takes his own life in despair. Worldly grief, godly grief. Let me read you a couple more things and I'll start to wrap up here. One, and this, so this is from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's their definition of repentance. It's a little wooden. It was written in the 1600s, so bear with them uh, as I read it, uh, and then I'll clean it up for us here in just a minute. But they say, what's repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of sin turn from it to God with full purpose and endeavor after New obedience. Easy, right? Now let me read it again. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of sin turn from it to God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. All right, let me make it plain, if you will. Uh, we were down, down the shore, or for those watching from other places at the beach uh, a couple of weeks ago, and the, uh, a, a um, tropical storm had just gone by. The undertow was pretty bad. Uh, and essentially, there was a group of kids who kept floating further and further out. And the lifeguards like, come in, come in. They weren't coming in. And one kid in particular looked like he was pretty stranded. Lifeguard jumps off the lifeguard stand, jumps in, swims out, uh, offers that little red floaty thing, raft or can, I think is what they call it, but offered this kid the raft. You know, he's like, he's like you know, his boys just saw him getting rescued, and he's like, no, I don't, I don't need the raft. And so he just kind of struggled, and the lifeguard, you know, swims alongside with it just in case 
he needs it. Uh, but here's what I think uh, an illustration of what repentance is, is it's the raft. It's the can. In fact, I've tried to kind of consolidate that Westminster uh, definition to this acronym, raft. So repentance is really first receiving something. God didn't need to offer us repentance, but he does. He offers us grace. It's us admitting at the very outset of thinking through repentance uh, that I'm a sinner and I need God's grace. But then it's an awareness of sin and God's mercy. You know, you can't repent of something or seek forgiveness for something that you're not even aware that you've done. So it's us just saying, I'm broken. I messed up. But it's also in the same breath being aware of his mercy. You see how those two things go together? F is feel, right? There is an emotional aspect to it. You know, in Jeremiah 31, and even here, we'll see that there is grief and hatred of sin that should begin to emerge. And then finally, there's T, which is turning. It's turning from something to Jesus, and part of that is a renewed purpose and pursuit of obedience. You know, even if we're not feeling it, it doesn't mean we should stay there in the danger zone, but it's saying, hey, even though I'm not feeling it, I'm moving towards my Savior. So friends, let me just encourage you to do this. Don't look at this as a formula. This all kind of comes in one package. You might not be in all those places at once, but if there's any place here where you're not engaged, it's a position of prayer. It's where you go to the Lord and say, Lord, I really enjoyed this. I don't want to stop doing this. Will you move me towards guilt and hatred of my sin? Now, here's the reality. The kid, uh, when he, after he was rescued, he walked by. I was like, hey, what did she say to you? He's like, oh, yeah, she's stupid. She didn't want me to do X, Y, and Z. And that's kind of typical, right? He's just kind of like in his pride. I didn't need any help, Right? And I'm there more often than I'd like to think spiritually with God when he offers me that raft. But, but he looked at that lifeguard as the enemy, right? But here's, I think, a different picture of what the gospel offers to us in Jesus. That same day, a couple miles north in the midst of this undertow, there was a young man whose family was swimming in the waters off New Jersey, and they got in trouble. You know what he did? He jumped in the water to save them. And you know what happened? He drowned. You see, that's the picture of our Savior, that he's not just this lifeguard who offers us the raft and walks away. He gives his life for us so that we can move away from the danger of sin and its destructive nature. Have we lost sight of the reality that we need a raft? I know in my own life, repentance is not like the air we breathe. It's not necessarily a lifestyle of mine. And I was convicted of that the last two weeks on vacation. The reality for the follower of Christ is God calls us to a lifestyle of constantly, like David saying, search me and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, see if there be any way I'm grieving you, and lead me in the way everlasting. So let me wrap up with this. What is so comforting or confidence-building about this group of Corinthians. Well, they repented. And do you know what that signals to Paul? That sin is no match for God's grace. No amount of sin is a match for God's grace offered us in Jesus. So for the unbeliever, if you're just feeling a twinge of grief this morning, can I encourage you to lean into it? 
to take a moment and, and repent. And what that simply means is even a simple prayer to God saying, God, I admit that I am broken and fallen from you, and I need you to rescue me from my destruction. And the only way that can happen is through the perfect life, the payment of penalty and death on the cross of Jesus Christ, and his resurrection. If you just pray that simple prayer, then that is repentance. And the fruit of that can be lived out throughout your whole life in a life of faith. For the believer, repent. I guarantee you there's something where we can take to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm living in rebellion against you here. Here's the other thing. Is Paul is encouraged because grace is constantly working in Corinth, in his own life, and in our lives as well. Let me close this in prayer. Well, Jesus, we praise you that, Lord, you know our hearts. We're not, we, we can't even play with you. We can't hide our brokenness from you. You see it. And even still, you see it, and you love us to the end, going to the cross to offer us the raft of repentance. Wherever we may be, unbeliever or follower for 50 years of our lives, may we lean into that grace today. We pray these things in your name. Amen.